You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. If you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We are, we are concluding a series called Gospel Power. Um, uh, some people would say it's ironic. I would say it's the sovereignty of the Lord. We started it when we had no power in the church. Uh, but that very first Sunday, we talked about how... Uh, the depths of the gospel, uh, how in the gospel uh, we don't have it just for salvation, but we have it for sanctification and the beautiful, glorious depths of it uh, that we never grow past it per se. It's not just the invitation to come into this relationship. It really is what sustains our relationship with Jesus and what we as a church will continue to point to. Uh, but after starting off with that, we also introduced this equation. Uh, I did not create this. Ray Ortland has. However, many has taken this, added, uh, taken away, or just used it as a whole. Uh, but as you see on the screen, we talked about when talking about the power of the gospel, that truly comes when you have uh, the right, true gospel doctrine and that produces a fruit of gospel culture. And that's when the power from the gospel is truly unleashed. Um, that it flourishes. Uh, however, as true as that equation may be, uh, we have reference and we took a week talking about each one um, and the importance of each one, but we do know a, a church or individual or, or some, uh, a group, a movement can have the right doctrine, but not have the culture that the fruit should come out of it or the community that was within that. And if that's the case, you're going to see a good amount of hypocrisy that will come out of that. Uh, that's where we or churches can tend to get very legalistic or, or, or become fundamentalists. Uh, but then to the other pendulum, you may have all the right of the culture, the right type of relationships um, and, and, and the culture of uh, grace and forgiveness and transparency and authenticity. But you actually don't have the right doctrine. Beliefs are starting to very much waver from what is uh, has been historically Christian orthodoxy. Um, not no indifference when it comes to like the closed-handed gospel issues and open-handed in, in each place of such things. And although you have great culture, if you don't have doctrine, you will see fragility. You will see, again, uh, a, a church or an environment that can easily be broken or damaged or vulnerable, or as I've added in, you'll see a lot of those churches theologically will go very much to become more liberal. But if you have the right doctrine with the right culture, again, the power of the gospel uh, will truly be unleashed. I, I was reminded just of the importance of, of the two, just in what we just got done singing and build my life. Like as we sing prayerfully, show me who you are. That's doctrine, church. Show me who you are. But then as we sing in the same next sentence, lead me in your love to those around me. That's culture, church. We must have both. And, and I want to just, uh, I say briefly, hopefully briefly, give some examples of this. Now, when I give examples, I'm not telling you they're perfect examples. And I'm not saying this is our church's examples. Okay? This is me, one person's opinion of examples. All right, But I want to just briefly go over some examples of this before we get into a study of God's Word with it. And this sermon's going to be a little bit different than what we usually do. Um, usually we're going three quarters of the year uh, through books of the Bible, verse by verse. We'll go through topical, even sometimes of those it'll be exegetical. This time I'm going to be taking big chunks, big, big chunks of, of some scripture, not really um, expositing it, but really referencing showing both you see the doctrine 
the culture, but then the power being unleashed. And so you're not going to have, like you usually do, a lot of the text on the screens. So please make sure, even if you didn't bring your physical Bible, uh, maybe go to Bible Gateway or something on the, on the phone and make sure you have it in front of you because we're going to be walking through a good amount of text and I want you to see it. Like most times, all like my passage is just right here and I'll bring my smaller Bible. Listen, I brought out the big guns today, okay? So you need to have their Bible in front of you because we're going to be walking through it in just a moment. Before we do, I want to give some just either historical or cultural examples of this, of, of both sides. Uh, first, first, when it comes to examples of uh, gospel culture that does not have gospel doctrine and the fragility involved, um, then there's a history a little bit of this. Uh, there's churches and, and denominations maybe more known for being welcoming, being forgiving, being loving, being accepting. And I know all of those words mean different things politically and culturally, but uh, is it not true that those words also show a fruit of hospitality and sounds similar when we talk about what community is rooted in grace? So take out what you may know and, and think when it comes to the political, cultural terms of that. But there's churches, denominations that are maybe more well known or are actually doing it that doesn't have the doctrine that we have historically believed in or is very much changing often with that. And you would see those churches, most of those churches being theologically liberal, in great decline. Citing a study in the Glen Mary Research Center a little over a decade ago, that study reported that the PCUSA, which is, again, the more theologically liberal part of Presbyterians, declined by 11.6% over the previous decade. United Methodist Church lost 6.7%. Episcopal Church lost 5.3%. United Church of Christ uh, lost 14.8% of its members. And the American Baptist Churches, USA, again, the more theologically liberal denomination of that, uh, declined by 5.7%. However, in this same study, again, this was a decade ago, um, on the other side of that theological divide, the more conservative theological denominations, they happen to be ones that are growing. And I'm not saying power is in numbers, as I'll get to in a moment here, but I am saying that there is fragility if we don't have doctrine. And so when saying that, the Presbyterian Church in America, the again, more theologically conservative side, 10 years ago grew 42.4% in that same decade that the other side lost 11% of their members. The Christian Missionary Alliance grew 21.8%. Evangelical Free Church, 57%. Assemblies of God, uh, again, don't mean we believe everything these churches believe or anything. I'm just saying theologically conservative, 18%. And at the time, this is completely different now. I'll get to that later. At the time, SBC, 5% growth. That has declined over the years. We'll get to that. Even one of those denominations I had mentioned just a few years ago, they split over again what we have over differences and what we have historically believed as orthodox beliefs. Um, I think about this, another example, not just denomination historically. I think about this just even personally. Uh, people and, and bands and authors that has even influenced in me, has influenced me. Um, has meant a lot to me, but then seeing a theological conservative uh, uh, drift. Uh, I think of one particular band. Um, some of you guys may know, uh, I was reminded of this, uh, 
because uh, some of you guys may know uh, uh, Eric McClanahan. He's a church member here, and uh, he created a CCM March Madness. And as he created that on Twitter, it went viral. I'm talking about this guy. You can talk to him a little bit maybe after, but he has now interacted on Twitter with like the heavyweights of CCM music industry, all right? I mean, you name it, Michael W. Smith, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, um, Amy Grant, all of them has like now gone back and forth on Twitter talking to him because of this big March Madness that he created. And I won't go into all details with it, but I, I will say that uh, many have been surprised on who the final four were, all right? And me, a lot of people like, this isn't just how dare this, I can't believe it. But people voted for it. And I noticed within the final four, there was a little bit of a trend that a lot of people voted, and they were bands, not maybe the heavyweights top selling of CCM industry, but they were bands that were very, very, had very, very dedicated fans because of their transparency, because of their authenticity, because of some of those things. And it had me thinking of one of my favorite Christian bands at the time, which was nowhere like Amy Grant or Stephen Curtis Chapman. It was a hardcore band, okay? When I say hardcore, I mean they scream and they sing, all right? And like, I love them. I have one clap and the other like judgmental faces, all right? Um, and, and, and I love them, and uh, I even, like, a couple times I played in the car when all four kids were in the car. Uh, one time, I remember, Olivia may remember this as well, I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. I, I, they they, had, they did, had good harmonies, melodies. They had a screamer and two singers, but the singers were really good, okay? But then the scream would come in. And so there's one song that I really loved, and the first minute, they're singing, and then the screaming comes in. And I'm playing it real loud, all four kids in my car, but all of a sudden, ah! okay, you would have thought somebody farted, and rolled up the windows, okay? They're just like, ah, ah, what is this? Like trying to roll down the windows and everything. Uh, again, I thought it was funny. However, uh, they, they did not. But this one particular band, they were known for all those things, being transparent, authentic, all these things. But they experienced a lot of church hurt. And they, again, theologically really started drifting. They created a podcast called The Bad Christian Podcast. When originally creating it, you would even hear their authentic, transparent, like, views, um, and at first it was like, okay, I agree. Like, as a Christian, I believe I'm a sinner. I, I get along with this. But as they theologically really started drifting, I'm talking about Christianity is not the one true religion. It's just true amongst many other religions. I'm talking about as honestly and as, ta and as antagonistic as you can get for the local church and thrown out so much and where they would not be even professing to be believers, um, half of them now. I realized and thought, although there was a following still, they're transparent, they're authentic. They relationally are very loving, it seems like. Well, if it doesn't come with right belief or orthodoxy, as Joey defined last week, there's not going to be much power. There's not. Not the power of the gospel, at least. Again, when you have the right type of culture, but not the doctrine, you're going to see fragility as even every one of them getting deconstructed. But then to the other pendulum, we know that there can be those who have the right doctrine, but they don't have the right culture, right relationships, the right proof of what we are to be in grace and with the community and loving each other. And then you will see great hypocrisy when Ray Ortland, who again originally created this equation talks about that part. He always shows a famous picture. Um, you guys may have seen it before. 
but it's a famous picture of a church uh, back in, I think it was in the 40s or so. Um, it was a church in Oregon, uh, um, and uh, uh, they, they, I don't know exactly what they doctrinally believed, but in the background of this church, it's kind of the choir loft in the front stage, and you see a big banner that says, Jesus saves. Do we align with that doctrine? You should. <laughs> okay, we do. But then underneath that big banner, you see around 50 Ku Klux Klansmen just up there in the midst of their pastors and their deacons, they're in the suits, like 15 of them or so, and then 50 KKK people right in front of there. It may say Jesus saves what we agree and believe in, but something's going on. If you're allowing KKK people to go up there where the application and the culture is off. And as he used that example, had me thinking about many of the churches in the 1700s, 1800s, that specifically supported, agreed with, defended the transatlantic slave trade, not what we read and see, what we've defined and talked about in the past with Philemon of economic servitude, although I know there were certain times and, and, and sins even involved with that, but not as what we've discussed in the past of what we see in Philemon, but instead forced slavery based off of color of skin and very harsh, domineering, abusive treatment of people made in the image of God, where doctrine in some of those churches may have been good, in some cases, not all, because if you historically kind of read that, you have some of them actually taking away certain passages of Scripture, not letting the, the, the black or colored people in their church to see these parts or the people that they owned um, to see those parts of Scripture. But some, if you do look back, saying, I would agree with everything of this doctrine. But obviously, culture is not there and has been rightfully pointed out as hypocritical. Yeah, this is just good opinion, my opinion, not saying church or anything of the sort, what we believe, what we stand for, what we, we're, we're putting our, land, our like, thing in the, the sand or line in the ground. But I, I couldn't but help when kind of keeping up with this and research studying this, a, a pretty well-known church in California with a pastor who, in my opinion, has some of the best New Testament commentaries out there. Uh, this pastor church known for their doctrine what I personally would agree with in doctrine even. Both closed-handed and some open-handed issues. Yet years ago, their elders had publicly disciplined a woman for refusing to take back her husband after she brought up, accused the husband of physical and sexual abuse. Some of that against her and some against her children. And where they, again, they disciplined her for not taking him back after he said he repented and forgave and she needs to forgive him and, and because she didn't want to stay with him in that environment specifically, she was disciplined. And then sadly, incidents happened again where her husband went to prison for child molestation and abuse. And as this came out later on, they even asked a lawyer who was an elder and four officers at that church to study the case, come back with them with some of the results, in that, they found out, although this was a specific circumstance there, that can happen anywhere, right? That can happen. There can be lone incidents with sinful people. But they realized, or he realized and said, that there's a long history of other women that have been wrong. Not just a specific thing there, but where there has been abusive 
things covered up, domineering things. And so when he came back to the church that gave him the charge to do the study, and he says, we need to make some of these things right. And they told him, forget it. And they told him to walk back his conclusions or resign as an elder. Church, that is not good culture there. I would read and did keep up and study, and I would say, that makes sense when it comes to hypocrisy. And witness. Yet, when you have, again, doctrine and culture rooted in what we discussed over the last three weeks, it does truly, truly, instead of the fragility where it seems like things are easily broken, damaged, vulnerable, or the hypocrisy and loss of witness, you will see the power of the gospel flourish. And I know I gave examples, but again, let's look at the scripture now. Look at Acts chapter 1, because we're going to go through the first four chapters, not reading all of it, but reading a good chunk and not expositing it, but see in this, in the early, early church, the beginning of this book, how this is beautifully displayed. The power of the gospel displayed in this early church has doctrine that may be hard at times, may, but is true, is being proclaimed and professed. And then culture coming out of this and fruit from that. And the power of the gospel. Specifically that word coming out. Starting with Acts chapter 1, you see in verse 6 through 11, this is when Jesus, uh, his final time on earth after the resurrection, and so he came back and he shares, he says to his disciples, what we studied last week, our Missions Month verse series, before he ascends back into heaven. But, verse 8, Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as he was ascended into heaven, here's again the start of the church. You see in verses 12 through 26 in Acts chapter 1, the disciples hearing this, receiving this of sorts, but not exactly understanding this, hiding in the upper room. Uh, they do have some church business to uh, resolve and take care of as they choose Matthias to replace Judas. But then you see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, what is known as the Pentecost. What Jesus said, my gift to you, mine dwelling within you, to become those empowered witnesses and missionaries. To have me, which he had said, this is going to be a greater gift, better than me physically with you. God within you from the Holy Spirit. And so, in Pentecost, that's where they received that. And then the first sermon of the New Testament church. Peter, in verse 14. And this is doctrine right here, you guys. And some of these are hard truths, but truth that he had to proclaim, that he had to profess that we have to do something with, that we have to continue to believe and share and say. We're going to read it. It's a good chunk. Read it with me. Verse 14, chapter 2, Peter, first sermon, gospel pro proclamation comes. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them because everybody was in awe and everybody was confused as in the spirit they had the different languages. And they're like, what's going on? 
How, what, how are they able to know languages they didn't know before? And so he says and addresses the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, they're not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. They obviously didn't have Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville at that time, okay? But verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's going back to Old Testament prophet to prove and show who Jesus is as Messiah. Good doctrine right there. Verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, see, shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then he goes back to even David. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. I don't know how you can unhinge the Old Testament when the first sermon has three references to it. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would not set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. They were questioning one right now. This shows, this, we see, this is, this is prophecy being fulfilled, that the Messiah is here. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Verse 37 through 41, as he concludes this great doctrine being preached, revealing, showing the gospel. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What does Peter say to them? I mean, it's hard truth. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort or encourage them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And what happens? So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Praise God. Praise God that he's speaking the truth as hard as that may have been. In fact, they're going to get in trouble for that. They're going to arrest. They're going to have to defend this. But they stuck to what they know is true, what we believe is to be true. And what was part of the result of that? Yes, fruit 3,000 being saved that day. But look at the very next verse. 
the fruit is the culture as well. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You see, the culture came out of this. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And because both now thought just the proclamation profession of right doctrine and the gospel message, but them living it out amongst each other. I mean, this is our community go-to passages. And because of both added to their number day by day, those who were being saved, hearing the truth, seeing it displayed, in the homes, you see great power being unleashed. And don't see it just in that chapter. Look at the next one. Chapter 3, you see verses 1 through 10. A beggar that was healed miraculously. And so in that, people questioning, people wondering, people accusing. And so then you see in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, again, the apostle Peter preaching the gospel in defense of this miracle. And as he preaches the gospel, right doctrine here, again, verse 12, he happens to say, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Talking about the miracle that happened and the question here. Well, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? This isn't of us. This is the power of the Lord. And so as he defends that, what the power is, and preaches the gospel to them at the end of chapter 3, you see him and John being arrested and taken to the Council of Sanhedrin, the highest leadership of the Sadducees. And so as they are taken before them and needing to defend the gospel of Jesus and the power that comes from it as they did this great miracle, you see in chapter 4, verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what, here's that word again, power, or by what name did you do this? Of course, who are they saying? Jesus. It's not us. It's not us. And so verses 8 through 22, Peter boldly proclaims the gospel, knowing that there could be great consequences for this. But in God's sovereignty at the time, they said, the Sanhedrin, hey, if this is really of God, we can't stop it. I mean, this is not good for us, our positions. This isn't going to be good for our future. But if this really is of God, we can't do anything about it. And they had great fear. That's the word that was used, great fear because of that. And so they didn't stop it as that doctrine continued to be preached. And they said, okay, whatever, just stop preaching that message. What does Peter say? Nope, I'm not. I'm going to proclaim the truth still. Believe this truth. And so, in this great proclamation of what we believe in doctrine of the gospel, what then happens right after? Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. Oh, there's our go-to other community passage. When they were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his united, I mean, his anointed. 
For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal signs, wonders, and, and miracles performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And then, look at verse 32. Here's... Here's the culture. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great, oh, there's that word again, power. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid at the apostles' feet, was distributed to each as any had need. You see the culture. You see the power unleashed in the early church from the preaching to the witness, because both culture and doctrine combined unleashed it. And listen, again, um, Examples, my own examples when I think back of some of these. And there's many, many more, I'm sure. But a couple that just stick out. Examples of gospel doctrine with gospel culture. You see, again, the power of the gospel. Whether that be in numbers of converts or awakening or renewals within many. I think of, of two things, maybe more recent examples. I say more recent, like in the last century or so. I think of the purpose of Labrie. Who was created? That was created by uh, Francis Schaeffer. Um, Joey had mentioned him last week. Uh, he wrote a lot of great apologetic books. Uh, the God Who Is There, one of my favorite. Uh, but he was like the—he was actually the beginning of a kind of pro-life defense. And as he, during that time, again, where lots of, of hippies were coming to Christ, but then questioning things, not finding answers with things, what he did. What he did, again, nowhere near a perfect person, but what he did was he moved to Switzerland. He bought a large land and a big, gigantic house. And he moved there and said, anyone who has questions about Christianity, you can come as an antagonistic agnostic. You can come as an atheist. You can come as a Christian question your beliefs. You can come as a solid Christian. Anyone who wants to come, we have a home for you as we try to do our best to live in gospel Christian community and we will answer your questions. We'll figure out when it comes to provision, work, do some things here, but we will answer your questions. And so as he taught them to the best of he knew doctrine and truth, recognizing a lot of them needed that discipleship, but then providing that environment. Again, you look back in the heyday of that, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. A beautiful, beautiful thing. And again, around that same time, I briefly referenced this a week or two ago, but you see in the Jesus movement, you see, especially in the beginning of this, what was happening in California, specifically with Calvary Church, and not saying that everything we would believe doctrine of what's true then or maybe true today, but as you saw a lot of hippies coming to know Christ, but not getting discipleship. What happened was somehow, some way, I say somehow, some way, you can do the research yourself, they were getting fed into Calvary Church, which at the time it was, you know, business suits, even his perception. Like he was fight with his wife, like, what are we going to do with them? We have to have a heart for them. We have to do this. And he'd be like, we have to tell them to take a shower. 
You know, that's what he's going through. I don't know why. I mean, like, like disagreeing with so much of what it seemed like culturally what they are and believed. But then coming to terms, as he had said one, one, one day, he, he, the Lord did open up, like, we have to disciple them. And so he expressed both with his wife, who he was kind of feuding with about it, but then also his church, who was like, there's too many, and they're dirty, and all that type of stuff. And so he said, I don't know exactly what we need to do, but I do believe we need to love these kids and teach them God's word. Love these kids and teach them God's word. And so do you know what they did? Do you know what their first step in this with this was? As hordes of hippies began to follow Christ, as their Lord and Savior came to know Christ, not even any result of what this church did, but just through some, some pretty miraculous type things, the gospel being there, being proclaimed. What he did was they started home Bible studies patterned after Chuck's, Chuck Smith's verse-by-verse teaching style. And they put him into home groups to learn how to read God's word verse by verse. And that led into not only more house church, but movements and fellowships to the denomination even at that time. There's power in both the culture, the doctrine. And it's not even power that will always result in great big numbers. As I had mentioned, it comes also with an awakening within ourselves, with the renewal of an entire community group or discipleship relationships. But it does spread as witness, as boldness in what we proclaim and a lifestyle of how we live, even if we're being persecuted. But we don't care because there's power in both. You take another book of the Bible. I'm not going to go through this like I did with Acts. But what many would believe and say, probably the most meaty theological book of the New Testament. What book would you say is known for one of the most meaty theological books? Somebody's going to guess the wrong one. I apologize. But what would you say? Thank you. <laughs> He's like, ah, <laughs> I knew it. Um, and you read that, and you do see the depth. You see the doctrine. You see Romans chapter 1, where he starts by sharing how he longs to go to Rome to see both them, but jumps right in sharing about God's wrath on all unrighteousness while talking about general revelation and how we're accountable to God for our created conscience, history, and surrounding creation. That's doctrine. Chapter 2 of Romans, his judgment being just, but the purpose of the law and God's judgment. That's doctrine. Chapter 3, the purpose of circumcision and then how it relates when it comes to the new covenant. But then he goes into original sin and an introduction to faith and grace that leads actually chapters 4 through 7. Those are our go-to passages as Christians when it comes to faith, justification. As he talks about Abraham being justified by faith, how law we have from the Old Testament has revealed sin, again, going into original sin. But ultimate justification, our go-to passages in Jesus Christ, righteousness through both grace and faith, strong, important, the meat right there, doctrine, chapters 4 through 7. And then you see in chapter 8, life in the Spirit over law, adoption and salvation and heirs with Christ, a future glorification in the depths of God's love in the gospel what I had used when it comes to the depths and parts. You see chapter 9 when it comes to God's sovereignty and his control, going back again to Old Testament in connection with it. And then chapter 10, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. 
Chapter 11, his plan for salvation with Gentiles and their purpose with Israel and Jews. But then come chapter 12, in the remainder of the book, it's not doctrine. In chapter 12, as he shares the go-to youth ministry passage, our lives being living sacrifices, not being conformed to the world, a warning But then he goes into using gifts in your church, and that's the chapter, as he concludes that chapter, with the marks of a true Christian. This is what this means, lived out. As you are going to be a living sacrifice, here's the marks of a true, genuine Christian. That's culture. Then you see in chapter 13, a strong encouragement to be submissive to the authorities above us, fulfilling the law through what? Love of neighbor, verses 8 through 10. And then what a proper witness looks like in verses 11 through 14. That is culture. Then in chapter 14, a warning against quarreling over certain opinions and conviction. That's culture. Not judging, which you need to read all those who are still judging me for liking hardcore music. Not doing anything that will cause others to stumble. That's culture, church. And then chapter 15 Bearing the failings of the weak within the church. How do I bear the failings of the weak here? How do we live in harmony with each other? And then that's our hospitality passage. Hospitality. What is that? Culture. Even in that chapter right there, this is where we get, notice how the word power comes up here. Romans 15, verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders and by the Spirit of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elysium, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see culture, both power in the first half, a little bit more, first half of that book. And then as he concludes with, and this is how we're to live this out. There's great power. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. As Jesus himself touches us through his truths. Without the doctrines, the culture alone, church, it's fragile. Without the culture, the doctrines alone, they're going to appear pointless or hypocritical. Why should I do this? It's not bearing any change or what you're saying. But as we read from Acts to Romans to the New Testament, it binds doctrine and culture together. And so, for example, this is not my words. This was Ray Ortland again. The doctrine of regeneration it creates a culture of humility. The doctrine of justification, that should create a culture of inclusion. The doctrine of reconciliation, that creates a culture of peace. The doctrine of sanctification, that creates a culture of life. Even the doctrine of glorification, it should create a culture of hope. And overall, the doctrine of God, it creates a culture of honesty. And if we want that type of culture to thrive, we can't take doctrinal shortcuts. If we want that doctrine to be credible, 
we can't downplay or dismiss that culture. Turn a blind eye when it's not aligning with what the scriptures reveal. But churches and our church, when the doctrine and the culture converge as one, it will produce living witness to the power of Jesus Christ. It will. But church, that starts individually. That starts with some of us in this room asking, talking to the Lord, saying, do I need to grow in doctrine or I need to be careful with certain things in doctrine? That starts with us asking ourselves, do I need to grow in relationships and love for others and grace and forgiveness and trying to create that culture and discipleship and community at home? Or what do I need to be more careful in that area? And as you first ask yourself that, and that potentially spreads or becomes more of a conversation or is discussed and lived out intentionally in your home, that does spread to discipleship relationships and community groups. Because you're all asking that and striving for these things. As that spreads to community groups, that spreads to different ministries of the church. It spreads to the church as a whole. As that spreads to the church, that can spread to churches. Hey, I see and hear good things coming from them. I see in relationship good things coming from them. I want to have the same. The power of the gospel. As that spreads to churches and areas, that spreads to countries, it ebbs and flows in the sovereignty of God and history, but the power is in both the proclamation and belief, but also it being lived out in relationship. So I ask, how do you need to grow? And are you willing to be sent out in that power? In fact, as we conclude, and as we sing, and I pray and hope it's not just a song to sing. It is truly a prayer of your heart. We're going to sing a song called Send Me. We're sent out in that power. I pray and hope that you will pray these words. That you'll believe them about yourself. That you'll talk to the Lord and maybe within community group over this next week. What are the areas I need to work on? I need to grow in? Doctrine, relationship, culture, community with others. But at heart, I want to be sent out, empowered by the Holy Spirit to share and live this out with others. Send me. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what it reveals. As it reveals the gospel and the power that's in it. The same power that changed our lives as we responded to it. As we received not only salvation, but life change from it. But Lord, how that spreads. How that spreads as we continue to grow in what we believe about you. What we need from you. How we think of you. 
Uh, we are a witness in such beliefs. But Lord, not only that, in relationship with others, where it is needed for forgiveness and grace, but also accountability and discipleship and encouragement for others to grow. And God, as we do our best because we know we're not going to be perfect, but to know that you gave us everything we need, it's sufficient for us to receive the power of the gospel, not only in the life change we receive ourselves, but for it to spread to others. I pray, Lord, that what we sing will be a prayer of our heart. Send us. Send us. We thank you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.